Hey everybody, welcome back to the show. I am Ted King, your host here on King of the Ride podcast. Hope you're all doing well. Our guest today is Ben Hoffman, professional triathlete, husband, father of two young kids, ripping fast cyclist, businessman, inevitable businessman that is in the world of triathlon. He's an Ironman winning triathlete eight times over in fact. He's won seven half Ironmans. Iron Men, whatever it is. He has won a baker's half dozen of those two. And more to the point, Ben is a contemporary of mine. And as I endeavor into this, let's call it giving my all 2024 season, he's closer to the end of his career than the beginning. Just like it is a safe guess that I am too here at 41 years old. And I thought we shared a few interesting parallels, both as athletes and as people. I'm really thankful personally for the time that I got to spend there in Tucson last month, soaking in the great weather, lots of great miles. And I'm thankful for the time I spent with Ben both in training and then him having me over to his house, meet him and his family for for dinner and a great podcast. He has some amazing insights into the life of an athlete and that of a great person. So I really think you're going to enjoy this show. Good times. Speaking of good times, I really enjoy going out on a bike ride maybe listening to a podcast, soaking in the good time on the bike, and a good workout. There's a good chance you do the same thing. If you're anything like me, you listen to a lot of similar podcasts, the outdoor lifestyle, the active lifestyle, and you hear a fair number of advertisements for AG1, just like you hear here on my podcast. If I were to guess, all of these other podcast hosts are truly using AG1, just like I do. And that's because we tried it out, we saw it's working, and we wanted to get behind the product ourselves. Personally, I rely on AG1 to help me feel energized, hydrated, and ready to roll each and every morning. It's very simple. The first thing I do every single morning for the past two years is wake up, head downstairs, and drink a serving of AG1 before I've even made my morning coffee. It's just that one scoop into the handy shaker, and that daily delivery of AG1 makes me feel like like I've already got a head start on the day. I've set things into motion to be in control of my nutrition and my activity right from the get-go, and that's because AG1 delivers my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre- and probiotics, and much, much more. So look, if there's one product I recommend to elevate your health, it's AG1, and that's why I've partnered with them for the past mm, two years, two plus years, so many years. But if you want to take ownership of your health, I want you to start with AG1 too. Try it right now and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3 and K2 and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase just by visiting drinkag1.com slash tedking. Again, that's drinkag1.com slash tedking. Check it out. There you have it. Introduction complete. Let's dive into the conversation now with Ben Hoffman. Ben, today is a Monday. Monday is often, but not always the case, often a rest day. What did you do today? It was an easier day, I guess, um, overall, in terms of intensity at least, but I did um, do a little of all three sports. I'm a triathlete, and you know, 
I remember living in Boulder um, years ago, and a guy I trained with, Richie Cunningham, said, you know, we're triathletes. You swim, bike, and run every day, mm-hmm. you know. And mm-hmm. I don't actually do that, but today I did. So yeah. I did a 3,800-yard swim. Um, I did a four-mile run this morning, and then just an hour and a half easy on the bike. Yeah. Um, one of my favorite movies is Austin Powers. Do you remember the scene where he says, my name is Richie Cunningham, and this is my wife, Oprah? <laughs> He's meeting number two. Oh, my Lord, it's like the greatest thing ever. I, I didn't realize there was an actual Richie Cunningham. Yeah, yeah, Richie, uh, he's long since retired. He's 10 years older than me, um, okay. but he was pretty, he actually played a big role in, um, I think, shaping me in my kind of earlier days. I mean, I rewind way back. I started triathlon in college, University of Montana in Missoula. I got associated with the club team there, started training with them, you know, raced and yeah. And then I decided when I graduated from college, I was like, well, I don't really want a real job. I'd like to see if I could go somewhere with this. And, um, yeah, I did. I went, I moved back to Colorado. I'm originally from Grand Junction. I moved back to Durango, Colorado, Mm -hmm. lived there for four years. And, uh, I felt like at the end of that four year period, I had definitely improved as an athlete, but I felt like I was kind of a big fish in a small pond. Yeah. You know, Durango's a small town, um, and all the big hitters were living in Boulder. And so I moved to Boulder, uh, and yeah, I met Richie Cunningham and Chris Lee and a bunch of other pros that were there. Yeah. And uh, yeah, they kind of changed my perspective, I guess, on what, you know, hard training was. And sure. um, yeah, I think also just being professional too. So there is a real Richie Cunningham, and yeah. <laughs> He's a bit of a legend. <laughs> Not just an awesome part. <laughs> so, yeah, this is this is going to be a little bit more interesting for me than it is for you. But in order to do due diligence, in order to do some research on my guests, I will often listen to podcasts. And so today I had a big day. I had six hours. And I basically felt like I was hanging out with you all day because I listened to podcasts with you on them all day. Uh, as a result, I am excited to talk to you. I do think we have a lot in common. Um Kicking things off, you had a recent social media post, which, recent due diligence, I think you just put this up like an hour ago, and it literally says, <laughs> well, and let me paint the picture for it, folks, you can you can scroll back through it, you have a coat and tie on, you're looking very prim and proper and dapper, when the coach says, nothing fancy for the first couple of weeks, 2024, but you're feeling a little bit fancy, enjoying the build back for a big season, being consistent, staying healthy, and having fun, let's go fast at 40. And in particular, the Fast at 40 is what I absolutely love because I'm doing something very similar myself. Um, we're both married. We both got a couple kids. That is the long preamble to how are you feeling about the coming year? I actually <clears throat> feel really optimistic. Um, you know, I feel, yeah, just kind of, I guess, like always grateful to be doing this career and be doing this job and, yeah, to have my health and you know, to have all the things that you just mentioned, you know, healthy family and yeah, just a rich life overall. So I would say optimistic though, when it comes to the performance and racing side, like I just, I got kind of a second or third or fourth wind or whatever it is at this point now that I'm 40 mm-hmm. and I feel quite motivated to uh, just do the best that I can. I mean, I know that sounds generic, but I do feel like at this age, um, I recognize, you know, the young guys coming through. We were on a bike ride the other day, actually, and this came up. Um, mm-hmm. We were just chatting briefly, and I, I don't, you know, have any illusions necessarily about being 25 or 30 anymore. Um, but I do think there's a lot of p- 
positives that come with aging. And, you know, certainly I think I can still be really good. And, um, I guess when it comes to, yeah, comparison, I try not to, to do that too much. You know, I think there's a great quote that says comparison is a thief of joy. And I believe that that's really (laughs) true. Um, however, of course, when we get to race day, it's inevitably a big piece of what you're doing, right? I mean, you are comparing yourself to other people in the sense of trying to achieve a top result. But is a race uh, the the thief of joy? Never, I've never <laughs> could, heard that quote. But it, it was yeah, so it, could, it could be actually now that I talk about it. But no, I love I love the training. I love the racing still, and I'm I'm super fired up for this season um, yeah. as a long way of answering your question. And yeah, I'm just trying to enjoy it with the idea that it probably could be my last season of racing. Yep. So how? Here we are, what, uh, called mid-January, early January. How do you go about building your calendar? Yeah, it's definitely different now. Um, The thing that I'm doing, I'm balancing now, it's not just about my own ambitions. I'm also racing with a visually impaired triathlete, um, a paratriathlete. So, yeah, what we actually did was sit down um, back in December. It was my... uh, the athlete that I'm guiding, his name is Owen Cravens. His coach, Parker Spencer, my coach, Ryan Bolton, and myself all got on a Zoom call. And we just sort of chatted through the season and how we wanted to structure it, knowing that the Paralympic Games are our a number one goal as a team. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in the past, I certainly would have laid out my own ambitions first. But um, as I'm transitioning out of this professional athlete lifestyle, um, this is a big piece of it now. And so that's where we started. And then we kind of built back from it. And we looked for little windows of time where I could kind of fit in some of my own goals. Um, so right now, yeah, the, the idea is to kick off the season in early March with him in Miami. There's a race that will be an auto qualifier for us for the Paralympic Games. And then I will probably go back to Ironman South Africa in later April. So that'll kind of be the early part of the year. And then into Yokohama, which is another para triathlete, um, para tri race that we'll be doing mm-hmm. in Japan. Um, and then a handful of other races. And then potentially uh, one more go at Ironman Hawaii, which I haven't said really out loud to anyone except my wife. So <laughs> you're hearing it here first. Right on. Um, well, I appreciate that transparency. How, what is, what is the distance of, the Olympic para try. It's actually a sprint distance race, so quite opposite of what I've been doing. Sure. Um, for Iron- I mean, I'm, I'm, I consider myself kind of an Ironman specialist, like an yeah. eight-hour guy. And uh, these races are typically around an hour long. So you've got a 750-meter swim, a 20-kilometer bike, and then a 5K run. So they're over pretty quick. And it's definitely been interesting for me to try to change, you know, that... that uh, I guess sort of diesel engine side of me and tap back into some of that fast twitch or, you know, sort of the faster, um, speed stuff that I hadn't really done in many, many years. So, um, but we're, we're having success, you know, we're doing well and I feel like, yeah, I can continue to improve in that area. So that's exciting too. I can still get better even at this age. Yeah. Um, well, among the podcasts that I was listening to included one where your coach was the guest. I mean, he talked about you a little bit, but he talked about, you know, his general principles and so on and so forth. And I guess what surprised me is how much high intensity there was in triathlon because my very uneducated mind is you're doing a really solid state effort for eight hours and you don't really need to need to punch it over that. But it seems like, and in riding with you on a handful of occasions over the past two years, yeah, you were, you still have quite a bit of explosiveness. So what are the literal training things that you are doing to prepare for for Paris? 
that would be different than a normal year? Yeah. So, I mean, one thing for sure is I'm spending more time like on an indoor setup, you know, I'm doing more indoor training and that's not something I've historically done a lot of. It's part of the reason we live in Tucson, Arizona, and we, <laughs> you know, go to nice places that have good weather most of the year so that I can train outdoors. Cause that's, I mean, it just, it's always been part of my life. You know, I grew up not doing triathlon, not really doing the sports that comprise triathlon, but being outdoors a lot. And it's just a big, big piece of my life. But Certainly more time on the trainer, which I think is a, obviously a more controlled environment for those higher intensity efforts. Um, and then, yeah, doing things like, you know, 45, 15s, 40, 20s a lot. Um, yeah, things that I had done in the past, but yeah, they're more maybe cycling specific that you would mm-hmm. think of as kind of those high, high intensity workouts. And yeah, and then when it comes to the running side, a lot more track work. I mean, a lot hmm. more speed work than I was doing. You know, I mean, I do quite a bit of threshold running, um, a lot of tempo stuff. But, yeah, getting on the track and really working on that turnover and, and true speed. I mean, you know, I, I'm still not the fastest guy. I never was. But, you know, just trying to get that real top-end speed on the track, uh, 200s, 400s, things like that, that, yeah, I probably hadn't done in, you know, four or five years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you work... Do you end up working with a specific run coach or is everything under the umbrella of your coach? It is under the umbrella of of my coach, Ryan, and he, um, his background, you know, he was actually an Olympic, he went to the Olympics, the first uh, Olympics they had for triathlon in Sydney in 2000. So he was there racing as a triathlete and his background, you know, he's more known or he was more known actually for coaching, um, elite sort of East African runners. He built, um, yeah, what was called the Harambe project. And he coached, yeah, primarily runners for years. And then, you know, he kind of has transitioned now over to being more of, an, of a triathlon coach. So he does the whole program. And, um, yeah, I, I feel like that was actually the reason I went to Ryan. Back in 2017, I decided that I wanted to be a better runner and to definitely run a lot faster marathons off the bike. And I felt like I was getting there, you know, gradually, but I, I just saw the writing on the wall. I mean, any, anybody who was winning Ironman Hawaii, they were running in the low two forties and you just kind of had to do that if you wanted to be competitive. Mm-hmm. Now that bar is, you know, raised even more sure. or, you Always. Know, yeah, it's gotten faster and faster, but I think that was kind of the impetus for my decision to go to him. And I've certainly improved as a runner and I, I trust, you know, his running expertise. He coaches actually a lot of triathletes but also you know one of his athletes right now morgan pearson comes from a running background he ran at cu boulder and uh you know i've just i just saw actually i think it was yesterday he did a track meet at like 5300 feet in boulder and he ran like a 407 mile and like a 817 3k or something you know i mean like legit times for especially for a triathlete so um yeah i think ryan knows what he's doing and i have you know confidence in his program sure oh yeah that makes all the difference uh he, I don't know if it's still the case. I want to say this was like a 2020 podcast that he was, where he was the guest and he was talking about uh, now coaching Heather Jackson, which I only bring up because in the small world that is life, I went to the same high school as Heather in the small really? town yeah. in New Hampshire. So it's cool to see her. Yeah. And now she's getting into the gravel scene a little bit more the last couple of years. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. I think she was sort of exiting triathlon a little bit at the same time she's getting into gravel and then crushing ultra running. Yep. So. Yeah, she's she's quite the athlete. We're, yeah. we're we're pretty good friends with Wadi and Heather. They spend about sure. half the year down here, maybe a little oh, more right. now. Yep. Um, so we do see them pretty often, and yeah, it's been cool to see her make that change. Um, yeah, but uh, 
Ryan doesn't coach her anymore, but yeah, okay. they did work together for, for that period of time. And it, honestly, I think it was tough, you know, just all around. It was an odd time. I mean, I don't know how you handled the pandemic, but yeah, yeah it was a, it was definitely a strange time, I think, for everyone just kind of figuring out the best path forward with, I don't know, minimal racing and oh, yeah. just sort of a crazy amount of uncertainty in the world. Accurate. Accurate. How did I, I don't know how I did it. I think I can answer that in about 10 years. Yeah. I'm like, oh, I did that well, or I did it really poorly. Um, what are the literal logistics of doing, of being the sighted guide, pilot? Uh, what are the what are even the terms? Am I using the terms correctly? I mean, as far as I know, it's Captain and Stoker, right? For, okay. for a tandem. Yep. I mean, and but I, yeah, I guess I'm just called a guide, basically. I mean, literally my kit now says yeah. guide on it. Nice. Which, uh, you know, it's... I'm used to definitely having like my own kit, but racing under the uh, you know the world triathlon rules, they have a, it's very different anyway. My kit says guide on it, so yeah. The the guiding is. Um, I think the real trick here is to start a company called Guide, <laughs> so that you're getting all the advertising. Right. Yeah. We're Guide, sponsored by Guide. Exactly. You got all the athletes that are <laughs> guiding. <laughs> um, but yeah, we basically the way it works is. It, it's called PTVI, which means um, paratriathlete visually impaired. Okay. And they have basically three different categories, B1, B2, B3. And, um, and that's according to the level of blindness or visual impairment that these people have. Yeah. Um, Owen actually has some vision, peripheral vision. So um, his central vision is compromised, but he can see peripherally, which makes a big difference. For example, in the water, he can see me, you know, yeah. swimming next to him, which helps a lot um, because... We swim with a tether that's attached to our leg. It's a stretchy kind of cord. And, um, you know, I wear sort of a brighter colored wetsuit just so that he can you yeah. know, cue off of that a little bit better. Yeah. But it's amazing. I mean, he does a great job of navigating, you know, just kind of reacting. And, of course, you're putting pressure at times. Like, if you really want to move left or, you know, right, you're kind of bumping into them because he swims on my right-hand yeah. side. Yeah. Um, kind of like giving him that, you know, nudge. But if you're pulling left to kind of guide them that way, you know, they can feel that pull and then they react. Um, but most of the time I don't have to do a lot of tension on the cord because he can actually, you know, just sense where I'm at and kind of be close enough. And on the bike, um, so, you know, that's the swim, strip the wetsuits, and then basically his hand is on the bike, you know, kind of feeling um, and, and running alongside it. So that's guiding him as we get, you know, towards the transition mount line. Mm-hmm. And right now we're still kind of honing our skills on this, but we're doing like a flying mount, which I don't know how much triathlon. I mean, your wife, right, has done a bit of triathlon. She, yeah, she's a yeah. handful of Ironman. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. I've I, never I, actually watched this portion that you're talking about in particular, but right. I understand transition is an and, interesting And zone. definitely it's, it's a time you might want to, like if you want to get a little laugh or a chuckle here and there, because I mean, it, it can be, is. yeah, there's, there's some carnage sometimes with yeah. the, with the mount, but yeah. anyway, we're working on our flying mount, uh, which just means that you're kind of moving the whole time. You don't come to a dead stop, which keeps the momentum rolling and it's sure. a lot faster. Um, but basically I mount first, jump on the bike, and then he jumps on behind, um, while still holding onto the saddle, of course, for guidance there. And then, as you've probably seen, or maybe you've even ridden on a tandem, you know, I'm basically just on the front piloting us. And it has been definitely, a, I don't know, a, a brand new experience, you know, when you're used to just riding your own bike yeah. and ripping around and cornering, you know, kind of, yeah, having that sense of, of total control. It's definitely different. It's a bit more like driving a, a bus or like a yeah. truck with a trailer. Um, yeah, it's different. So lots of, and the 
courses, they're not ultra technical usually, but they do have quite a bit of you know cornering um, in them. So that's been interesting to get used to that. But we're pretty competent. And, uh, and then on the run, once again, we're wearing a tether as well. So he can kind of, and then they have what they call free leading zones. So if it's a really twisty section or if it's kind of a complicated section, you're allowed to, you know, sort of, they're allowed to hold on to you more like properly, like grab your arm yeah. or grab your shoulder and like you kind of, you know, use your body to guide them that way. Um, so that's basically the way it works. And uh, I, I am fortunate in the sense that he doesn't have total blindness. So, you know, that actually does mean that um, he's a he's a pretty competent athlete on his own. Yeah. Um, and I, I think that it makes it my job a little bit easier, actually, than somebody who has total blindness. Is it draft legal? It is not draft legal. Yeah. Um, wow. This is fascinating. And are you competing against people who have the same visual impairment? We're competing against everybody that's visually impaired. However, yeah. the way it works, and this is a bit of a, an odd thing um, and a bit nebulous in a way, we, there's what they have, they have a factor basically. So the fully blind people start first and wow. we start two minutes and 41 seconds behind them. And yeah, it's, it's a little tough because I mean, you're on the start line and you watch them go and you're like, it's, yeah. you know, it's painful, right? Like sure. you're like, Ugh. but Dude. at the end of the day, typically what happens is people that are in Owen's category end up closing the gap and often winning. So, you know, and what they do is they set a factor for an Olympic cycle. And I don't know exactly when it's set, how many years out from the Olympics. I think it's at least two maybe, mm-hmm. um, so that everyone understands what the factor is going to be going into a games and they don't change it for however long that period is. And then they kind of reevaluate the data afterwards, I think, and make changes if they need to. Um, cause the idea is that they're trying to level things out as much as possible. Right. Um, but yeah, it's definitely, that piece of it is a little odd. And even talking to Owen, there was a time, I think back in maybe 2016 or something like that, when this was all getting going and they, they had the conversation of like, should we just have every athlete wear blackout goggles, like the whole time or blackout sunglasses? Oh, wow just so that we know that everyone's kind of operating from the same, you know, place. Um, And, you know, that was eventually sort of shot down. You know, I think there were certain people that didn't want that. You know, they wanted to use whatever vision they had. So this is the solution they've come up with. And, yeah, that's that's kind of what we're operating with. And, you know, the good news is that we have found ourselves to be quite competitive. Um, You know, there's a British team that's kind of far and away the best right now. But I'd say that we're fully capable of meddling in Paris, which is exciting. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Um, yeah, I can certainly see how that would be difficult to level the playing field. Yeah. You know? it's, it's definitely like, not a, not a perfect situation. No. But, you know, I think th- it's like anything, right? I mean, you, you see changes even in the NFL now, right? Mm-hmm. You think of this, these sports that have been around for so long and you're like, how could they possibly change this stuff? Right. And then they make a rule change. Right. And I think it's, it's actually kind of smart, right? I mean, it's the way things should be. There should be an evolution to things and yeah, con- you know, change is the only constant. So let's, let's be honest, like, you know, they're just going to build the data and try to make it better and better over time. Like mm-hmm. hopefully everything else. Well, yeah, the irony of the time thing is I recognize we're not all robots, but it's almost like they're trying to reverse engineer it so that everybody finishes at the same time. Yeah, they kind of Oh, a tie. Right. I I realize then you (laughs) have a sprint down to the line and put a little bit extra juice. Well, it'd certainly make it for more, yeah, exciting viewing, I guess, Mm -hmm. but... So, uh, okay, you talked about a little bit growing up in Colorado. You've, You've now been racing for, what, approaching two decades. 
prior to that, what is, what is your upbringing like? What's life like in Grand Junction? And, and how do you ultimately get into triathlon, which you did allude to? Yeah, so grew up, grew up in Grand Junction, Colorado, Western Slope. Um, people probably aren't as familiar with it as maybe like Boulder, Denver. Um, mm-hmm. It's the opposite side of the mountains. And uh, I was lucky. I, you know, I kind of won in the parent lottery. My parents are awesome and had a great upbringing. You know, we were outdoors a lot. Um, yeah, I grew up doing all kinds of stuff. I mean, we were camping, backpacking, fly fishing, you know, rock climbing, whatever, skiing. Um, just taking advantage of Colorado and. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then it was, I guess, in high school, you know, I did, I played soccer, basketball, golf, you know, I kind of did a bunch of other things that really weren't related to anything I'm doing now. But um, yeah, I, I started doing some bike touring with my parents actually when I was in high school. I got a road bike and we did um, some, they were essentially kind of like the Ride the Rockies tour, which is like a oh, week long really? tour in Colorado. But there was another one called the Bicycle Tour of Colorado. It was also a week long thing. Mm-hmm. It wasn't quite as popular as the Ride the Rockies, but essentially the same thing. You know, you ride, you camp, you ride, you camp. And rental so, bikepacking. Yeah, it. kind of. Yeah. I mean, they kind of, they transported your tent for you, which was hey, nice, but. uh civil. Yeah, exactly. And Siblings? Had, Do you have any siblings at this point? Or. I have I have an older sister that's two years older than me, and so she was on these um, as well, um, mm-hmm. at least a couple of them. And then we did a family tour from uh, basically Jackson Hole, Wyoming. We kind of drove up there, and then we self-sagged our way out to Ohio to see family. So we rode, wow. yeah, each one of us would take a turn driving the car, and then everyone else would ride. And we just kind of did, like, I think it was almost a month of riding, um, which was really cool. Great way to see, you know, all different parts of the country. I mean, we were out in... Oh, Devil's Tower in Wyoming, you know, the Badlands. I mean, we just went through Jeez. all these amazing spots. And, uh, yeah. Prevailing tailwind, I hope. <laughs> well, not every day. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, it was, it was a good time. And so I think that was that, that definitely seeded the passion a little bit more for my, for my road cycling. And then, yeah, so I had a road bike, went to college, and I got started with the club team there. Started training with them, really loved the structure of it, liked the people on the team. And at the time, there were kind of two teams that were – you know, pretty good. And it was basically University of Montana, Missoula, and CU Boulder. And uh, it was cool because we won a national title as a club team. This is not an NCAA sport, to be clear. Um, But it was pretty competitive. And, you know, it was uh, was a good time. We won a title in my final year in 2006 when I graduated. So um, that was pretty fun. But yeah, that was, uh, that was a bit of my background. And like I said, I mean, when I think back in my childhood, it was, you know, I just, like I said, I kind of won the lottery. I feel like I've got great family mm-hmm. and uh, it was a great place to grow up, you know. It was safe, lots of outdoor stuff to do. And uh, yeah, I had a ton of fun. Perfect. I love it. Yeah. I, as I alluded to in the beginning, uh, a lot of similarities. I feel the same. It's like grew up playing a variety of different sports and fell into the one that worked for me in college large part of that on the the back of the support of my parents just saying this is a fun upbringing so let's talk about triathlon on the performance side as we were talking about a little bit on the ride the other day because over the course of your time in the sport you've seen some massive changes sort of the stark obvious one in the present social media uh technology and training that we see now um you know we're training with power that we probably weren't doing 20 years ago, the depth of knowledge of something like training peaks, so on and so forth. Um, the importance of recovery, nutrition has changed a lot, the value of sleep, uh, coaching, recovery modalities, even down to like the clothing has changed quite a bit. So what what is interesting about going through that list is that a lot of it is 
really basic. It's like focus on your nutrition, focus on your sleep, focus on your recovery. For you in particular, what are some of the most interesting and what are some of the things that have changed that you've really latched onto over the course of your career? Yeah, I mean, I think you touched on a lot of them, but it is funny because kind of as an overarching comment, I would say that there is a lot of new stuff, but also like what is new is also old. And a lot of it is noise too. You know, I mean, I think about, I mean, you immediately, you know, you touched on social media and social media is, wow. I mean, it's a whole nother podcast, you know, I mean, you could (laughs) talk multiple podcasts about it, but it's good and bad for sure. And, um, yeah, it did kind of come into my career. Jeez. I want to say, I remember being at like a training camp pre first Kona that I did Ironman world champs in 2009 and Twitter was like just getting mm-hmm. going. And, uh, I remember training with a couple guys out there and one of them was basically just using it to, you know, troll everyone. Cause he was like, <laughs> he, he would just basically say, Oh, we did a 200 K ride and a 20 K runoff at like, you know, three yeah. minute K pace or whatever. Yeah, and it was yeah. like, yeah, just kind of basically trying to psych everyone out, you know, using it that way. Um, but yeah, a lot of, a lot has changed and a lot is the same because I think at the end of the day the way I think about it is so much is dependent on how you feel and like RPE whatever you want to call it, checking in with your body, knowing how you feel, knowing what you best respond to is still kind of like the golden ticket, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, getting your head in the right place before you race, feeling like you're vibing, chirping, whatever you want to call it, you know, like feeling good, basically. Um, That's the key to performance to me. I mean, all these other things are certainly components of getting you there. I mean, if you have, you know, if you really believe in something, that's going to help, you know, using a power meter, you know, believing that you have to eat this exact food or this diet, those can be powerful because they unlock the power of your mind. But at the end of the day, I really think that, you know, you look at the people that are performing the best in almost any sport, and all of them just seem to be enjoying their life and basically having fun. You know, they're kind of playing in a way. So for me, that's what I go back to is just checking in and asking myself what things, you know, really make me feel like I'm still kind of playing and enjoying it and having fun. Um, so, yeah, but it's it, it, it evolves, it changes, because I would say there's been periods of time where I've been very focused on the data, you know, like making sure that I'm hitting these exact numbers on these workouts, and and it can go the other way, like I was kind of touching on, where it kind of psychs you out, and maybe it becomes a negative where you're so attached to the outcome of this workout that, like, <laughs> you know, you get stuck, and you get bogged down, and you get, like, in your own head, and you think, oh, man, I'm like, there's no way I'm going to race well because this one workout didn't go well. Sure. So, um, but... I guess to answer your question, I think definitely power, like you touched on, that did not really, that was not a thing, you know, that we really cared or paid attention to. Um, I think that on the sort of recovery side, you know, you see metrics like HRV, which did not exist. I mean, I don't even know, five or six years ago, people didn't mm-hmm. even really talk about it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and just, but for me, it's more basic. The things that I really focus on are eating good quality whole foods getting really good sleep. I notice that as being super critical for me. Um, as I get older, I just need to sleep eight to nine hours and have it be quality sleep and making sure that my relationship with my family is really good, Mm -hmm. you know, that I'm feeling good that way. Um, so that's kind of what I focus on and it, 
is sort of what it's always been through time. You know, that hasn't really changed with all the science and everything else that's here. And it's interesting because when I sat down with my coach, uh, Ryan, and I was sort of interviewing him, he was sort of interviewing me the first time we really met. It was actually here at our house in Tucson. He was here with a few athletes doing a, a coaching camp and whatever else. You know, he one of the things he said to me, which I still remember, he's like, I kind of think about training as a balance of art and science. And, you know, I think a lot of you hear people love to talk about gear and data, but you know, really we're human beings, we're not robots. And I think the best coaches, the best athletes are the people that are in touch with that, you know, human and artistic side as well. <laughs> there is no singular coach who has all the answers. And there's no one workout that everyone needs to do that that they haven't yet done, they haven't yet unlocked it. It's, it is such a, such a balance. Um, I mean, a coach is there for accountability and, and making sure you do the workouts, but man, it's so, it is so fascinating. Have you ever been self-coached? Yeah, for uh, quite a few years, actually. Um, yeah, I think probably nearly four years Probably, okay. yeah, about 2013 to 2017 when I was yeah working with Ryan. And, you know, it, it went reasonably well. I mean, I kind of feel like I've always been the person that's pretty innately motivated and at times probably to the point of like, you know, maybe doing a bit too much because that's just, you know, yeah. I don't know, maybe I thought it was cool or I don't even know, but I've always trained pretty high volume. And, mm-hmm. yeah, I think uh, it's been good because there's just been a little bit more focus to it with that, you know, with those extra set of eyes on things and yeah, for sure more specific, you know, work. I think it's really hard to, you know, to, to have the zoomed out vision and the really up close vision of your day to day life. If you're doing, you know, trying to do both like that, it's much better when somebody is far enough away to kind of see, yeah, what you're really doing and where you're really headed. Right, Um, right, right. Yeah. But it, I enjoy, you know, I, I still feel like it is symbiotic, though, too. Like, I have a lot of input with Ryan, and I think he trusts me a lot, too. Mm-hmm. And I do live my life every day, and I, yeah, there's only so much that he can know. You know, we communicate really well, and I think that's critical for any coach-athlete relationship. But, yeah, I mean, he gets busy, I get busy, and sometimes I don't communicate perfectly, or just, you know, he's not living my life. So, yeah, I think he understands that maybe I need to make a change here and there or whatever it is. And like I said, when I really wake up each day right now, I mean, I get a lot of joy out of following the structure of his plan. So I do that most of the time, but I also am paying attention to the fact that maybe something else is pulling, you know, and I want to do that. Mm -hmm. So, um, as long as it's not too crazy, you know, I'll probably listen to that and maybe do it and, or, or potentially bag a workout too, or change it, you know? Um, so I'm at that kind of stage now where I really am focused on making sure I'm enjoying things as much as possible. Cause I think that's when I get the best out of myself. Yep. Speaking of stages, you had a great quote at the tail end of our ride the other day that I hadn't heard. It was about the two phases of life. Yeah. Remind me what that was. I think it goes something like you have two lives and your second one begins when you realize you only have one. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. Um, which is appropriate for any number of reasons, not least of which you talked about one of, you know, you recognize that you get the best out of yourself also when you, when you are in harmony with your family. And you are married, you have two kids. How has each of those things affected your 
training, racing, career, travel, all of it? It's a great question. I think it's been really cyclical. When I think back to the beginning when Kelsey and I first got pregnant in the early part of 2019, mm-hmm. uh, or when we realized it, you know, we were like, oh my gosh, we're so excited. We wanted to be pregnant. And yeah. um, it felt like the right time. It felt like we were both old enough. We were a little bit more financially secure. And yeah, it was just like we were looking for a different element, a some more depth, something, you know, um, to our lives. And, and we'd always talked about having a family. So that was really exciting. And that entire year, um, in the buildup to having Josie in, in September, uh, which was really right, right before Kona. I mean, it was like five weeks before the world champs, which is not, you know, great timing on paper, but it gave me a lot of energy in my training. And even when she was born right before the race, it was like, just so I was just riding this incredible wave and yeah. And then it was you know, I had a great Kona. Um, I had a great race right after Kona, which qualified me for the next world championship. So I kind of had this bang, bang finish to the year. And then I got to come home and spend time with my family. And then three months later, the pandemic hit. And so, yeah, that was really kind of crazy. And, you know, I feel like to answer your question, it's been really cyclical. A lot of times it gives me a ton of energy and it's mostly a positive. I wouldn't change anything, but it's also challenging. You know, I don't think I'm like special. I don't think I'm unique. Every human being has struggles and issues, no matter how wealthy you are, how poor you are, you know, whatever it is. So I just try to zoom out to 30,000 feet and say like, we have everything we need. We're healthy. You know, I'm mostly enjoying my life. And uh, my kids really seem like they're enjoying their life. And that kind of becomes more and more of my metric of my happiness, where I'm like, if they're having a good life and they're mostly happy, you know, like, yeah, then we're doing it right. So, but yeah, it definitely adds layers and challenges. I mean, even now, I'm fired up for training this year. I'm really excited about the season, but I go out on these long rides and I'm kind of like, I feel like I'm a bad dad in a way because I'm away for a long time, six, seven hours. And then I come home and I'm super tired. So it's like, I don't have the energy to do what I feel like I should do as the dad. So yeah, it's sort of a weird dynamic, but overall we get a lot of time with them. Like I said, they're pretty happy kids. They seem to be having a good life. And like, yeah, I think a lot of being a good parent is making sure that you're also taking care of yourself and that you're Mm -hmm. happy because if you're not, they're going to know that. Yeah. Yeah. You can quickly become a very angry parent. (laughs) Uh, I mean, me being here, it's 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 rare over the past few years um, that I've traveled alone, and that's that's been largely a, a huge blessing to have Laura come with me, to have the kids come with me, um, and going to races. And Laura's often in the races themselves, also. So it it's it's rare that I'm traveling alone. Here I am in Tucson for a week, and to your point on a seven hour ride, I feel the same thing. Just being in Tucson or those rare events that I am alone you look forward to it for such a long period of time and then when you're out there you're like hmm, yeah am i doing this thing should i be here <laughs> should i be in Tucson? should i be at home should i be with the kids um but it is this very holistic puzzle that is life do you think being a parent can make you faster i do actually yeah i think it can and i i feel like what it can do is it can change your perspective on some of the things that you were giving energy and attention to that you thought were serious that really aren't. And when you do that, it's a relief. And so you can have energy and bandwidth to apply them to the things that really matter. Yep. And that's where I see it being the biggest positive because it just gives you different perspective. And yeah, I think, 
you know, I look back at some of the younger years that I had and, you know, I've had a successful career, so I don't want to go back and second guess everything I was doing, but I definitely think there were times when I could have been a better athlete if I would have had a healthier approach and mindset about it. And I think I have more of that now. And I mean, you know, a really recent example for me was that I raced Ironman Lake Placid, which I had done twice kind of earlier in my career. So, you know, you could say, oh, maybe I wasn't fully developed yet. You know, I wasn't at my peak probably, but I look at how I raced it this past year in 2023 and how I raced it in 2010 and 11, the two times I did it back to back. And my times were way faster. And, you know, it's just kind of one of those things where I think you said, you know, well, what about, you know, or somebody I was telling about this said, you know, what about the course and the conditions and whatever else? But, um, you know, they were relatively similar conditions. And, um, you know, just looking at, especially the run on the exact same course, like I'm way faster. And so, yeah, I think it's possible. You know, I think if you have the right mindset about it and you approach it the right way, it can, can improve you as an athlete and, and, you know, a person overall. I feel like it, it wasn't until I became a parent and you're holding your kid for the first time or they're sleeping under the roof for the first time, whatever it is, that you recognize that there's this club called fatherhood and it's the one of the most popular clubs out there, but you don't know it exists <laughs> until you're in it. Do you think there are any literal tangibles that you can take from from being in the present, from being married, from being a parent, from living the life you have now that you could throw back to your former self? Or is it all a little bit to a thirty thousand foot view and it's and it's a different perspective and, and, and time appreciation that you have? Yeah, I mean I think I mean I guess I feel like, yeah, it's hard because you kind of have to have the experiences, you know, to arrive at the knowledge. And so, but what I will say is, I think my biggest thing, and we are just kind of touching on this, but to like take it one step further, when I think about, I remember reading an article once where this guy was talking about Zen Buddhism and he was like, you know, this guy was a famous Lama or whatever, and he was kind of like, can you, like, he just comes at him, this guy interviewing him comes at him straight off the bat and he's like, can you just distill down like what yeah. Buddhism is like one <laughs> sentence? And the guy just kind of laughs, you know, and he's like, I mean, because it's so ridiculous to even ask that, but right. the, you know, he says it's a general appreciation for life. And I think that's kind of where I think about the curve or trajectory of my life being where the older I get, um, hopefully the wiser I get the more I see that it's not really about good or bad, but just being appreciative for having the human existence, being alive and going at everything you experience with that mindset of I'm happy, I'm grateful to be here and experience it. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I don't, I don't think I had that mindset when I was younger. Um, so yeah. And maybe it's just because I'm getting older and it's kind of like, I see that I'm, you know, I maybe for the first time I'm really coming face to face with the reality that I'm not going to live forever. <laughs> so yeah. Um, yeah. I'm trying to make the most of being here, but yeah, that's kind of how I think about that, I guess. And, um, yeah, again, I mean, I don't look back and think that I was doing a bunch of things super wrong and there's no way, you know, I see younger athletes and some of their behaviors and like their attitudes and just their approach. And I'm kind of like, you want to step in, you want to say things, you want to help, but 
you also realize that this is just a process, you know, mm-hmm. and they have to do their own process, I guess, in learning. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah, I think I think that is the parenthood club reference. It's like this thing that exists you can't change who you are before you were living a pretty good life before. And now here you are in this parenthood club. And now you're doing that to the best of your ability. Totally. Yeah. Outside of maybe sleeping a little bit less. Who knows? (laughs) Um, I know that you follow cycling. And so speaking in sort of cycling vernacular, there are the Tade Pogachars, the Tom Pidcocks, these guys coming into the sport of triathlon. And it seems like they're living like monks and and doing quite well. What Sam Laidlow won as Ironman World Championships is like a young 20s. Yeah, 23, 24, something like that. And, I mean, no different question than someone might pose to me or, or I could pose to you. Like, why is somebody like Tade Pogachar coming in and doing it so well at some, such a young age? My impression is, and, and I'm certainly curious to, to hear yours, that they've basically been living the pro-life from the time they were 10 years old. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember being teammates with a young Slovenian who, at that point, he was a 19-year-old two-time world champion. And I said, man, you're amazing. And he said, no, no, you got to see this next kid who's coming up. And at that point, Tade was like 13. And so I already have that billing at such a young age. Goes to show that, yeah, you you built up a lot of mitochondria. But it, it, do you think that is what is happening to see the success of athletes at, in endurance sports at such a young age? Or are, are they the fact that they're living like monks? Like, what is the what is it that you're seeing in triathlon? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a combination of factors. And I, I, my first answer would be that I don't know. You know, that I, I mean, Great answer. right. Like I really don't. And, you know, I think, I think actually as a side note, a sidebar with that exact statement, I think one of the best things you can be as an athlete is curious, right? I mean, have curiosity about like how to improve and what other people are doing and like what, you know, just trying new things basically. And yeah. And perhaps that's part of their success, you know, that they're curious athletes that they're always trying new things and, um, and new stimuli, but I would say what you said is a big piece probably that they have been using more scientific protocols for much longer periods of time and they have you know probably incredible genetics to begin with and then on top of that <clears throat> back to what I was saying earlier I really think that they're pretty joyful athletes most of them I mean you look at Tade and he's goofing off right I mean the guy looks like he's having a ton of fun and I've said this before on other podcasts probably hopefully you didn't hear it um uh, but because then I feel like I'm just being you know redundant but I remember I was living in Durango and uh training with a guy Ben Neller who was on Jittery Joe's back in the day Mm -hmm. and he and I took a road trip, and it was the first time I ever came to Tucson, actually. It must have been, geez, 2009, and we took his little fifth-wheel trailer, hit the road, came down here for 10 days, and then we went out and we caught some of the stages of the Tour of California. <laughs> and I remember we were watching it on TV primarily because watching, you know, how it is, road races, <laughs> they go by, and you're yeah. like, okay, well, that wasn't the point. Was cool. like, yeah, it was kind of more fun <laughs> hanging out with the people on the side of the road talking to them than watching the race because it's whatever, but... Yeah. Anyway, um, Peter Sagan was doing really well. And I remember, I think it was 
geez, who was on the mic? No, I don't remember who it was, but yeah, it might have been, I don't know if Vandeveld was announcing back then or not yet, but somebody was talking and they said, you know, when I see Peter and he's doing well at these races, winning stages, and he might, did he even win the overall at the Tour of California once or twice? Yeah, one, one time. It might have been that year. And they I remember the quote, the guy said, he, you know, the announcer said, you know, all these other guys around him, they're worried about their weight, they're worried about their power, and you look at Peter, and he's having more fun than everyone else. <laughs> and it was like, that mm-hmm. stuck with me, you know? And I guess that's kind of how I think about all this, is that probably the athletes that are, they have all the stuff. They have the best technology, the great coaches around them, they've been doing it for a really long time, and they're having a ton of fun doing it. They're not fighting anything inside themselves, they're just pretty much at peace with the process and enjoying it, and they have probably really good mental skills too to handle challenging situations you know i mean i think they're well equipped to view things optimistically positively and uh yeah and then the other piece the final piece again is that i don't know because it is kind of crazy they're really fast (laughs) and like i could not have dreamed of winning an ironman world title when i was 23 so yeah 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 i was teammates with peter for four years and the number of just sort of out of this world stories of what he was capable to, of doing on the bike are innumerable. Um, so it's almost like a chicken and egg. What came first, him being happy or or him having success? Because, yeah, he's just, at that time, it was when he was head and shoulders above the competition, so of course he's going to have a great deal of fun. And, of course, everybody else is like, well, what is he doing? Right. But, man, oh, man, it was just, I, I call him a circus bear. Like, there was a time we were going up some steep Tuscan hill, and he pulls a wheelie, and then he pulls one hand off the bars, and he pulls both hands off the bars, and we're doing 500 watts up a climb, and he's doing it on one wheel. And you're just like, well, that's something that <laughs> most people can't do. So uh, you're known to be something of a proficient cyclist, and before we even talk about your foray into gravel, you raced Cape Epic? I did, yeah. That's amazing. Tell me about that. Yeah, that's uh, also probably could do an entire podcast on that. But um, yeah, to sum it up, it was really challenging. And that's, I think, what I was looking for, but maybe a bit off more than I could chew in some ways. I mean, I grew up mountain biking in western Colorado. I feel like I'm reasonably proficient. I still ride a mountain bike a lot, actually. Um, but I think it was, yeah, I just, 2017, I had a good season, but... I feel like I walked away and I was at this point, I guess I would have been 34 years old then. And I had been doing the sport for, geez, I don't know, uh, at least a decade at that point. And it just felt like, I don't know, I needed something else. I felt like I needed something else. And yeah. so I was approached by Iron Man. They had purchased, you know, Cape Epic. That's right. And they said, hey, we have, you know, we'd like to have you guys race, you and somebody else race for the Iron Man Foundation and, uh, you know, raise some money and do whatever else. So we said, I, I said yes. And I said, but I kind of under one condition. I said, there's really only one person I think I'd want to do it with, which was Sebastian Keenley. Um and because I knew he, he was, you know, he follows World Cup mountain biking. You know, he's a really strong cyclist, and we were a bit of friends at that point. And uh, so I reached out to him. He said yes. And then, you know, next thing we knew, we were down in South Africa. Mm-hmm. And uh, is it January, February? It's uh, that one actually March? was March. Yeah. Okay. And we, <clears throat> I had done Ironman South Africa 
twice at that point already. Won it, actually won the race twice in 2016-17. So I was I was familiar with South Africa. I loved it. So it just all kind of sounded good to me. And I got super fit here in Tucson. Went down there and um, and we raced. But unfortunately, we got a stomach bug before the race even started, which is quite common. Yeah, it is. Um, and we were, we actually had a good setup. I mean, we had like a we had bed and breakfast. You know, like we weren't sleeping in the tents down in like the tent city. So we had it pretty cush. But we still got sick before the race started, so both of us had this GI bug, and we were kind of like sapped, and then you're just gassing it all day, you know, five hours, six hours a day on the mountain bike, beating your body up, and uh, I crashed really hard on the fourth stage, the clean stage there, and uh, ended up getting pretty pretty banged up, and uh, yeah, I kind of compromised my Ironman South Africa title defense, um, so it was sort of like a, yeah, a bit of a mixed thing. Um, <laughs> Yeah, and I feel like it wasn't as much fun as I would have hoped because we were sick and it was just kind of like a death march. Um, sure. But what I really appreciated about it was that it kind of changed my entire perspective on what was really challenging. I mean, I've been doing Ironmans and I thought that was hard, but <laughs> Cape Epic kicked my butt like yeah. nothing had before. <clears throat> it's interesting how circumstantial it was from your story just now, meaning if you hadn't gotten sick and you hadn't crashed, Maybe the stimuli would have been huge, and you would have had an amazing season. So. Totally, yeah. I mean, I and I ended up with a sacral stress fracture that year on the same side where I crashed really hard. And when I crashed really hard, it was one of the. I don't know if you've ever had this sensation. I'm sure you've crashed plenty of times in your Couple life on times. bikes, yeah. yeah. But I landed really hard on my right side, and I felt this like electric shock in my low back hip wow. area on the opposite side, actually. And I and I think it was probably just something nervy and weird, but. Anyway, yeah, that eventually led to you know a you know long time off of running, and I got going again. I thought I was healthy, but I ended up with a sacral stress fracture, and the whole year was kind of like a loss in 2018. And lost some sponsors, went into like the off season, super bummed out, and just kind of yeah. I mean, it was not not a great season. So um, you know, I I don't regret it. Um, I think maybe I was a little bit. I don't know. Maybe I kind of overestimated my abilities, you know, and thought I would be able to do yeah. this thing and everything else I was doing, and it was probably a little bit too much to add. But yeah, I mean, the way I crashed was kind of just a fluke thing. I was following. We were actually we would we started in the A group. The pro started before us. We were five minutes behind him, so we would chase as hard as we could to catch up to <laughs> anybody that was straggling off the back. You had no right. chance of right. ca- catching the fastest guys, but you could catch some stragglers and maybe ride with them, and they were you know pretty solid still. And we caught up to these guys one day on that fourth stage, the clean stage, and I was riding, and Sebi was in front. He had already made his way through both of the guys, and had the guys you know, that I was right behind, his partner was up the road with Sebi, and uh, I was following him as close as I could, just waiting for the moment where I could shoot past him, you know? Yeah, yeah. And he, I, he, he, he went around a rock that I didn't see, and I clipped it with my pedal because I was so close to him, yeah. and I just launched off the bike, you know, just flew. And, uh, oh, man. Yeah, so, you know, whatever. Hindsight's twenty twenty. I don't regret it. I learned a lot, but yeah, it was a it was a painful experience. Honestly, I mean, yeah, it's uh, I, that said. Maybe one day I would go back. Yeah. So. <laughs> it's getting quite the fanfare. Yeah, I mean, it's it's as races hit their stride in, in popularity and so forth. Yeah, I feel like that's a amazing one, which is also a funny testament because twenty twenty three, the most recent one, I think was a muddy. Oh, yeah. abysmal, sloppy, horrible, everybody got sick mess. And yet, I mean, man, it's like no different than Unbound. This past year at Unbound, it was filthy. And people are like, well, 
you gotta go sign up again. Exactly. It's part of what you love, right? I mean, that's like the beauty of some of these things that they don't get dumbed down. They're still like really pretty. I mean, they call it the untamed mountain bike race or whatever. And it really is one of those things where they're kind of like, well, you know, like it's going to be really hard. And like, that's why you're doing it actually. And (laughs) so don't complain when it's hard, you know? And uh, yeah, that's, so anyway, anyone listening out there that's thinking about going, um, just be prepared for a really difficult, yeah. I mean, even if you're having a good time, it's yeah. going to be hard. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, it's sort of like at the finish line. The person who wins has a big smile on their face and second place is completely gassed. Yeah. Because they've been chasing all day. <laughs> um, I feel like we know a lot of the same people. Um, a lot of them happen to be kind of in the gravel scene, so to speak. And you have been there since the kind of the beginning, I guess. I mean, I don't know what where it's actually considered to have started but um because i mean shoot i'm sure you did this too but like even when i lived in durango we'd ride our road bikes on gravel roads all the time and like it wasn't called gravel riding then you know but um anyway you feel it feels to me like you are kind of one of the og guys for gravel and uh yeah i'd be curious to hear like what you feel like gravel is or how you feel about it now um that things are obviously changing and evolving so yeah gravel certainly precedes me I was the first world tour guide to come to gravel by probably two or three years. Um, and there were other domestic pros that were doing it, and I saw how much fun they were having, and it was not my intention at all. My last world tour year was 2015, and I had no real intention to get into racing in 2016. And certainly gravel in 2016 is different than it was in 2013, is different than it was in 2023. Um, you said earlier that constant... I mean, change is the only constant, and and I have had my hesitations about the things that have been changing in gravel, um, but I think it's kind of like putting your head in the sand to, to say, well, back in my day, it was so much better. Um, not to immediately turn the question back to you, but I was curious. Like, It seems to me that triathlon precedes gravel in so many ways in this exact regard. You have Ironman in particular. You have this kind of arbitrary distance for a set period go exercise for an extended period of time and then you're going to have a winner and the evolution of what Ironman has has gone through ultimately being purchased and bought and sold 16 times over um, that's fascinating to talk about the spirit of triathlon as I'm sure that a lot of people have uh, would have some interesting insight there and not to mention that you also have to be a, a privateer Right, I mean, like you guys are the original privateers, so you have to sort out all your your funding and sourcing, and there's probably not a lot of teams where you're just head to toe decked out. So, uh, I do want let those be questions that you can ruminate on. I see the sport changing. Um, young up and coming talent is coming in, and at first I thought it was crazy that you could make a career in gravel without having a career elsewhere, without being a roadie first, a mountain biker, a cyclocross racer. And sure, now there are people who are going straight from juniors to racing gravel. Um, I I see the same thing apparently in triathlon. I follow a lot of hockey, and what hockey players are doing now, straight from juniors to the NHL, is is remarkable. And you know, leading rookies and in, in points and scoring, and and it's no different than seeing Tade Pogachar and, and Remco just crush it at such a young age. Uh, 
it's cool. It pushes the sport forward. I think given the climate of domestic racing right now, where road racing is just sort of circling the toilet bowl for a period of time, I mean, the, the sport is very cyclical, and I think road racing will come back at some point. But for the time being, gravel is the, the stepping stone. and It's the place that people can ride a bike and spread their wings and see if they can make it elsewhere. To go back to the, the concept of people having performing well when they're having fun, the Peter Sagan. I also listened to a podcast today with Sepp, and and the interviewer was trying to ask all these you know super specific questions about his training and his diet, and, and it's like Sepp, no different than Peter in his heyday. They're just they're on a different playing field. Like they are physiologically born to ride a bike. And Sepp laments that yeah, the state of domestic road racing is really tough, and he he caught the very tail end of the heyday, and that allowed him to ride for rally, and ultimately you know have some performances to a Utah tour of, I forget what, uh, maybe Alberta, that caught the attention of world tour teams and that allowed him to go to Europe. I think he's so physiologically gifted, especially with a mountain bike background, that he could he could do what Keegan's doing. And I think the two of them are built identically. And maybe their minds and mindsets are a little bit different because I think Keegan is very much professionalized. I mean, he, he pays attention to the details and he loves diving into the details. I know he still loves nothing more than just going for a six hour smasher or seven or eight or nine. No different than, than, than what Sep does. So, um, that was a long tangent to say, I think that Sep could still find the, the Seps of the world could still find their way to the world tour. Keegan has offers. And I certainly understand that his position that he's in to be like, well, I'm just be giving up a lot to go have a world tour team take a risk on me and, and offer me sort of a low ball contract. So gravel's changing quickly as any new sport does. Uh, I'm sensing a meme here. I'm thinking of other new sports like pickleball. (laughs) It's like, is gravel the pickleball of cycling? (laughs) That's the t-shirt is mountain biking. The spirit of gravel. Um, okay. So now it goes back to you. Are triathletes the original privateers? I mean, <clears throat> and we certainly predate maybe gravel, like you were saying. Right. But I, there has to be probably other sports. I'm not drawing one up on you know in my mind right away. Um, well, I think any sport, like even <clears throat> hockey, basketball, a hundred years ago, these guys were they're skating around on ice with a, a rubber puck. Yeah, like, let's put it in the net. Now let's play for our city, and now let's get sponsored. Like, that's got to be crazy. Yeah. I mean, I think the only... You did touch on it. I think one of the big differences, right, with a lot of these sports is they're team-centric. They're based around a team concept. And so usually that means that, you know, there's some... I don't know, broader organization or something that comes with, yeah, getting other people involved, a coach, a manager, whatever, you know, people that are going to help... The whole team, I guess, and there are a few in triathlon. There have been through time. I've been on one, uh, uh, you know, once, and um, yeah, I think 
So you were outfitted head to toe? Well, no, that's not true. Even okay. even amidst that, I still had a lot of my own, um, you know, for actually pretty much entirely. Um, so really, that one's not a good example. But a lot of teams do have, yeah, some of the teams now, and there's not a lot of them, um, they do outfit people head to toe. But And actually, you know, as you were saying all this stuff about gravel, you know, talking about Sepp and maybe him coming over and maybe him being different than Keegan about maybe he doesn't, he's used to the environment of the World Tour. And I'm like thinking to myself, I'm like, is that the next? step for gravel or like yeah. you're going to have world tour teams that basically show up with giant buses and they're like here we are with our little gravel team you know mm-hmm. and we're going to like be there's people you know that are taking care of all the details for these riders just like they do on the world tour there was a headline in Velo news in probably 2017 and it was like is i think the team was stands no tube is stands no tubes the sky of gravel <laughs> because <laughs> they were practicing wheel exchanges and practicing going through feed zones which was yeah. yeah. Anyway. No, I mean, yeah. So your question was about us being privateers. I think, yeah. I mean, and, and that always drew me in. I thought it was really great, actually. I loved it. I mean, I still do to some degree, where you have the relationships with the sponsors, which is ultimately what a lot of these companies want. I mean, I'm not sponsored by Visa. You know, I mean, imagine some of these Olympic athletes that are. It's just all done through, you know, a management company, mm-hmm. and they don't mm-hmm. really have a relationship with many of the people at the company, probably. Um, but in our case, you know, these are people that we communicate with on a weekly basis and we enjoy hanging out with them at races whatever it is and it's probably the same for you i'm going to speak on behalf of ben and if visa is listening i think we would both accept your sponsorship <laughs> we can work something out we can yeah. split it we can split it between the two of us but yeah we uh i've always enjoyed that i thought it was a great part of it and it kind of gave me a little bit more depth and dimension to the job you know because i felt like i was working when i was off the bike maybe emailing phone calls whatever it was and i kind of liked that element sometimes mm-hmm. it was a little bit added stress for sure but mm-hmm. overall i enjoyed it and it felt like it was a yeah more human element to it um you know because i was communicating with people even though they were products and brands you know it was really about the people and so yeah we you know we probably are some of at least in the endurance space some of the original privateers and um yeah but i like what you're saying about you know i think that's the right mindset where there's a tendency to resist change. That's how humans are programmed, I think. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and inevitably that ends badly because change is the constant and you cannot control that, right? I mean, there's very little you can control in life, actually. And so trying to dig your heels in and resist the change is probably going to end badly for you. But yeah, um, maybe the mindset should just be about how you can influence positive change or what you view to be positive change in the space, right? Um, and help, you, you know, help other people make those changes too and, and contribute to those changes. But yeah, it's an interesting time to watch from the outside. And I did, I dipped my toes. I had dived on a couple gravel races and, you know, it's been even in the span of the couple years that, um, you know, I think I did my first one in 2020 in Cedar City, mm-hmm. a BWR race up there. And then obviously I was at Mid-South with you. Um, even in that span of time, I feel like a lot you know, changed really, Mm -hmm. um, in three years or whatever that was two and a half years. It was like, you could see this evolution happening. And was that your first Mid-South? Well, I mean, no, Cedar City was in 20, but that was your first Mid-South. Oh, first Mid-South. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That one, I I love Mid-South because it's such a melting pot of bike riders. Yeah. You know, it's certainly hellbent and racy at the front, but man, oh man, they bring in a lot of people who are really there for the vibes, which I love. It is. It's great. And I mean, that kind of, what you were saying earlier, actually, I wanted to say that I'm glad you kind of touched on that again, because at the end of the day, man, isn't it really, like you said, if this is the sort of 
gap filler, you know, for road cycling or whatever. It's just part of the evolution of continuing to see people riding bikes. And like, that's cool, right? I mean, ultimately we can pretty much agree on that. I mean, sure. Every once in a while you're finishing up your six or seven hour ride and some dude blasts past you on the river path on an e-bike and you're like, you know, like (laughs) (laughs) you don't even know what I just went through. (laughs) You're riding an e-bike, but at the same time in your best moment, you know, you're kind of like, well, it's another person on the bike and like they're enjoying the fresh air just like I am. And it's awesome. So, yeah, I think, you know, the more people on bikes, the better. And, uh, yeah, whatever that looks like, whether it's super competitive and, you know, whatever, I don't know, then I guess that's a piece of it and maybe a positive thing overall. Um, but yeah, that's at least a way I'm going to try to think about both triathlon, gravel, Mm -hmm. anything really just, uh, yeah, you're part of the, and and what's your legacy too, you know, what, what, what do you leave? You know, for not only for your your family, your immediate family, but yeah, for the whole sport and the other people that are involved in it too. Right. Well, yeah, that that theoretically and all those sound bites are where I should end the conversation, <laughs> and we should go eat dinner here shortly. I am curious about the spirit of triathlon from the original days. Like, are you a student of the sport? Do you know the original folks who who started the sport? Yeah, I mean, the story goes, at least with Iron Man, that essentially had a few guys that were, honestly, for lack of a better expression, kind of beating their chest, right? Like, they were sort of like, who's the best athlete? I mean, really, that's what it started with. I mean, the story. I wasn't there. We're talking about late 70s, where you've got guys that are... Yeah, you know, runners, swimmers, cyclists, and they kind of weightlifters. They looked at each other and they were like, I'm the best, I'm the strongest, you know? And they were like, okay, well, let's stick them all together and see who's really the best. And that's where it came from. So, I mean, in that sense, it kind of paints it almost in a bad way. I mean, we all are competitive. You and I are competitive. That's I embrace my competitive nature for the most part. I mean, sometimes I'm like, that's maybe a bit too much. I shouldn't be competitive about that. But, (laughs) you know, you you have to know, you know, know yourself, right? And uh, that's a big piece of who I am and always will be probably. But that's kind of where the origins were. That said, I think especially when it came to the training side of things, from what I read and what I understand about, you know, Mark, uh, Allen and Dave Scott and some of these guys, Scott Molina, these early dudes, you know, they were just, and even Cam Brown, who I know lives in New Zealand, the guy is, they're just savages. They just go out and train because they love training. They love being outside. They love putting in the big work. There's a satisfaction that comes from doing a big day of training and coming home and feeling like you really earned that food in the fridge. And I think, you know, that's probably what these guys were doing. I mean, sure, they were being competitive, they were preparing for races, but it was fun. And they weren't doing it fully scientifically, right? I mean, they were writing the book as they were doing it. So it was kind of like experimental stuff. And yeah, I mean, they were just going out and doing, you know, basically it was more is more. And uh, <laughs> and it was, and that usually works out, more is more until it's not. But um, yeah, I think about that as kind of being the origins of triathlon where it was pretty fun in mine personally too. When I started racing triathlon in 2003, I started with a club team, university club team in Montana, and we did the most nonsensical stuff. I mean, we were in winter in Missoula, so we would just run up the side of, you know, Mount Sentinel right there with mm-hmm. snow on it because we were like, who can get up there fastest, you know, and just like post hole our way up. And it was a great workout. Um, you know, we would go out and do brick workouts and it was freezing cold and our eyes would freeze shut in the corners, you know, it was just like, (laughs) yeah, we were crazy, you know, and it was fun. And I loved that about it. It was challenging and it didn't make a ton of sense, but it was, it was cool. And, uh, I think, yeah, I hope that 
some of that passion carries forward and some of that stuff carries forward into the future generation. Cause again, it really is about kind of playing and having fun and, you know, being curious about like, yeah, how you can be really good, but also have a ton of fun. And, um, yeah, hopefully we don't just turn into cyborgs. Right. Right. Well, that's the best part. You can train your brain out. You can do it all scientific. You can do it indoors. You can do it on Swift. You can do it in such a controlled environment. But at the end of the day, you still have to go out and race, which is fun and and presents the elements and presents the variables that, that allow us to tune in. Right. The unpredictable wow. element. Yeah, the stuff that you... You do. You try to prepare for it, but like, yeah, it's part of the beauty of it. You go out there because you know it is the race, and they don't hand out the medals beforehand. So mm-hmm. go find out. Yeah, exactly. You trained the most. Here's your blue <laughs> Here's your medal. All right. Awesome. You've been very generous with your time. Um, we can wrap with three traditional questions. Number one, what is your favorite place to ride a bike? Number two, what is the number one place that you would like to ride a bike that you've never ridden? And number three, with whom would you like to go for a bike ride? Oh, those are great questions. My favorite place, I have to just say it's where I live. I mean, I really have grown to love the cycling in Tucson. I mean, um, it's kind of known for having rough roads, which they're gradually getting better, by the way. Um, They are kind of paving a lot of stuff, Mm -hmm. um, including the entire shootout route now, basically, is like fresh pavement. Um, But... You know, there's good variety here. The weather's good most of the year, and the people really make it. I mean, the community here is awesome. The people are, you know, there's a ton of strong cyclists. People are really competent and proficient on their bikes, which is nice. You get on these group rides, and you don't feel like it's super unsafe. There are crashes sometimes, but for the most part, you don't find many places that have this kind of, you know, cycling environment. And um, for a place... A quick interruption. Yeah. I'm I, out for a really long time today, and I, you know, inevitably pass three dozen riders i swear every single one waved yeah exactly which it's, is probably it feels like of, a real place like yeah. people are pretty real here oh, like they're not wild. i know because i mean i've definitely even not to bag on boulder because i did like living there and i thought the training was pretty good i still enjoy going back from time to time but the hand waves and stuff were less frequent there people oh, were yeah. kind of in their world that you know maybe they think they're you know hot shit or whatever it is i don't know but like rule number one acknowledge, you know, just say hi, however you do it. You know, I've seen a lot of weird ones. You got the reach through like this, whatever, you know, do it, just say hi. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I, uh, I do like that component where it feels like you're living in kind of a real place. It's a little wild west and rough and tumble down here and you get a wide variety. I mean, you've got Mount Lemon, you got Madera, you got Kit Peak, you got good climbs, but you've also got good flats and you've got, yeah, gravel all around here too. I mean, it's decent mountain biking. So um, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's good. I, I really like it here, and that's why we're here right now. But I would say a place that I would really like to ride, actually partially inspired by a recent trip. We were um, at the tail end of our time in Europe last year. Um, we lived in France for about five or six weeks, and then we did a race in Vigo, Spain, and then we made our way down into Portugal. And at this point, I was basically on early off-season kind of a you know end of season first break that I took and I was not riding my bike but we went into Portugal and I've seen that you've been there mm-hmm. and you're planning another trip right coming mm-hmm. up and I would love to ride my bike there I just really thought the culture was cool it was a beautiful um, beautiful area I mean we especially uh, you know we enjoyed I guess probably our favorite place was Porto we thought that was rad oh, yeah. um, just a cool city a lot of you know fun multi- multicultural people all around the world there 
pretty affordable still. Mm -hmm. I mean, probably not like five or 10 years ago, but yeah, it's you know, great food, everything. So I'd say that's one place that I'd really like to ride a bike. And Places ideally, yeah. to tie in the third question, mm -hmm. um, my wife. I mean, you know, I think I'd probably who I would want to be on the bike with. I mean, she's awesome. You know, she does so much for our family, and she's actually quite a good mountain biker. She just got a brand new bike um, for Christmas, and nice. uh, yeah, she's back on the trails. So if you see her out there, say hi. In Tucson, you got a <laughs> wave. Right on. That's perfect. Well, really appreciate the time. Thank you for being on, sharing a story. Thanks, Thanks for much, having man. me. Yeah, it's been fun. Hey, everybody. Ted again. Comparison is the thief of joy. Change is the only constant. You have two lives. The second starts as soon as you realize you have just one. So much awesome insight in this podcast. I really, really enjoyed this one. I hope you got even a sliver of the insight that I got from it because Ben is awesome and I'm really looking forward to seeing him crush it in this 2024 season. Thank you, Ben. Don't forget, stop what you're doing this instant and visit drinkag1.com slash tedking to elevate your health. There you have it. Until next time, ladies and gentlemen, please enjoy the ride. <laughs>